Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300 is about you, the listener. We want your feedback, opinions, recommendations, and questions. Email us or leave us a voice message and you might hear us mention you or play your message on the podcast. Just go to the homepage or contact page at charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the links to email us or leave a voice message. It's easy to do. Let's have some fun together. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. You can subscribe to Charlotte Readers Podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms. And the best part is, it's free. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, this is episode 324 of Charlotte Readers Podcast, Beyond 300. I'm here with co-host Sarah Archer and Hannah LaRue. We've got a great lineup for this uh, episode. Yeah, we do. We start off with a feature of two different authors. First is author Paul Lamb and his novel One Match Fire, which one reviewer calls an elemental story of the love that transpires between fathers and sons. Another reviewer says it's a beautiful novel that will make you ask why we are here and demand answers. And then we're going to feature author Sonia Ramsey and her book Bertha Maxwell Roddy, A Modern Day Race Woman and the Power of Black Leadership, a book which examines achievements and leadership in a desegregated South and offers new insights into desegregation, urban renewal, and the rise of the black middle class. Next, we have a two-minute tip from Charlotte Lit by Paul Rialli. The title is Part 4 of the Series on Scenes, How to End a Scene. Yeah, we also have a feature from D.S. Davis, author of IPA, with his blog post, Hindsight Luxuries of Self-Publishing. Then we're going to finish up today with our reading recommendations, book pitches, community and listener engagement, and what's coming up in the next episode. But first, what's up with the hosts? Uh, I feel like we just did this. We record these back to back. So <laughs> yeah, we just <laughs> it may be the same thing that's up today was up yeah. <laughs> in the previous ago. But anyway, we're looking forward now. It's gonna be, it's January 31st ah. now, right? So okay. uh, that's, put that in your minds okay. as you tell us what's up, Sarah. <laughs> Uh, let's see. What's up with me on January 31st? <laughs> um, I think actually on the 30th, I'm going to a book swap for the Women's National Book Association. So okay. hopefully on the 31st, I will have a batch of new books that I have obtained for free, which is always nice. Yeah. Um, otherwise, just trying to find some time to work on my own projects <laughs> alongside preparing for some classes and uh, doing a lot of fun reading for the podcast. And yeah, that's about it. <laughs> How about you, Hannah? On January, on January 31st, 31st, gosh. Um, <laughs> you can't I'm think looking in through my binoculars <laughs> into the future right now. I'm like, Ugh, I'll probably... Well, my daughter will have just turned four months old, so that's exciting. Um, she's already kind of going yeah. through that sleep regression right now, so I feel... I feel that age <laughs> deep in my bones right now. <laughs> um, gosh, end of January. Um yeah, hopefully I'll, at that point, I think I'll probably be pretty knee deep, deep back into work, which will be good. I think, uh, getting my jive back on, I have a couple of interviews coming up for the podcast. So I'll hopefully we'll have read all of those books. I think I'll have, have an interview that week. So, um, and then I don't know, I can't, yeah, I can, I can really only see like a couple hours ahead right now. So it's sort of hard for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It is hard. It, it, hey, listeners, it's not. We're not really that far away from January thirty first. Like a couple it. of weeks, but you know, it feels it feels that I way. I know. I feel like yeah. it was just Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but I, yeah, and I, I'll be. Uh, we'll be kind of wrapping up, uh, uh, getting the uh, covers and the interior ready, and put up on pre order early February for uh, for the first book in the Right Quote series, and uh, we'll, we'll shoot an email, a newsletter out uh, about that. Probably our first in February that we'll give you more information about that series, but uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, as I said, we'll put that out free and hopefully you'll, you'll get it and download it and uh, share it and talk about it. And uh, uh, if you really like it, you'll get into the other seven books in the series. It's uh, I think I, we've got, we're still working on the title. You know, we, we talk about the fact that it's inspirational and it's practical, which I, I, I kind of think is true because there's so many quotes in there that you come away from thinking, yeah, that's that's let's run out of the building and go 
make some literary stuff happen, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> and then there are others that are like, oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Really? That, w- that would really make that would really make marketing a whole lot simpler if I had known that before, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, so that's what's going on. Um, all right, well, um, enough with the uh, what's up. Let's uh, hear what Libra has to say, and then we'll jump into our Act 1. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and claim your free audiobook. All right, I said we were going to hear what Libro had to say, but we're going to hear what Sarah had to say about what Libro's going to say. <laughs> <laughs> a little, little, little bit different there. But uh, hey, we're in Act 1. We've got two author features today. We're starting with... Uh, Paul Lamb. Um, let's see, Sarah, are you going to tell us about Paul? Yeah, sure. So Paul Lamb lives near Kansas City, but he says he escapes to his Ozark cabin whenever he gets the chance. His short stories have appeared in dozens of literary magazines, and his novel, One Match Fire, was published in 2022 by Blue Cedar Press. He has a master's in English from the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and he says that he rarely strays far from his laptop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. That's kind of like me, I feel like, most of the time. (laughs) One Match Fire is about the love given and withheld among a grandfather, a father, and a son in the Ozark cabin they are about to lose where they could always find peace with each other. It involves One Match Fires, skinny dipping, clandestine acts of love, running, coming of age, coming out, mistakes, forgiveness, acceptance, and love in all of its forms. It's about about ordinary men living ordinary lives, but to the man living his life, nothing ever feels ordinary. One Match Fire offers a peek into the emotional lives of men and boys. Terry Carter, Carter, a columnist for the Washington Post, calls the book a beautiful novel that'll make you ask why we're all here and demand answers. Yeah, that's great. And uh, so what we're going to do here, um, we asked a number of questions, uh, three questions uh, of Paul, and we asked him to do a reading as well. And the first question, uh, we mentioned to him the fact that nature plays a significant role in the story and the lives of the characters. And we asked him to talk about the influence of the natural world uh, on his writing. I've always been going to nature, whether for adventure or solace. This began in my youth when I first was serenaded by the three-note call of the whippoorwill. That call became so evocative to me that I used it repeatedly in one match fire. It's a totem sound for the family at their cabin. For the men and boys of the Clark family, the cabin is their refuge. It's where they can shake off the trappings of life and work in the city as well as their intrigues with each other and just relax. The natural setting is where they can be vulnerable because they are free to become their natural selves. This is shown in them catching their own dinner in the lake and building fires to keep themselves warm and sharing practical skills such as how to build a one-match fire to bond in unspoken ways. In a sense, they become forest creatures themselves, natural and innocent in their actions and intentions. Perhaps this is most evident in the skinny dipping they do, completely relaxed with each other while literally stripped of their defenses. I have a cabin in the Ozarks that is much like the one in the novel. I have cut down trees and caught fish in my lake and warmed myself beside countless fires. I have brought my children and now my grandchildren to this place that is sacred to me. The characters experience most of the things in the novel because I have experienced most of them in real life. I won't say for the record, however, whether I may have been skinny dipping in my lake. We also asked uh, Paul um, to talk about the fact that given this is his first novel, tell us uh, a little bit about uh, his background writing short stories and how that uh, shaped his novel writing process. I did not set out to write this novel, and I was surprised when a friend told me that that was what I was doing. I had written a single short story, what became the novel's prologue, in part as a way to suggest to my children what they might do with my own little cabin when I was gone. I thought that story worked well, and it was eventually published but I soon found that I wanted to revisit these characters in their little cabin. So I wrote a second story, then a third, and they kept coming. Eventually, 10 of these standalone stories about the Clark family and their little cabin were published in various literary journals, which was gratifying, and I felt they were ends in themselves. 
Yet, as I was doing this, I began to see the thread of a larger plot weaving through the stories, and I thought maybe I was writing a story cycle. But my friend assured me that, no, I had a novel in the works. Once I had that perspective, I could see how to finish the parts and assemble them into a whole, which became One Match Fire. But the novel's short story pedigree and my experience as a short story writer are evident throughout. Each chapter can be read as a complete story in itself, and I deliberately wrote them that way, which eased the writing of the novel because it broke down a really big job into a series of discrete, smaller jobs. There was uh, one line in the book that says, we tell stories to understand people. We asked Paul, how has writing these characters help him understand real people better? As I think is common among writers, Many of the characters in my novel have counterparts in the real world. The chapter, Boys Are Like Puppies, for example, is based on two specific interactions I had with people I know. I was appalled when I actually saw a man medicate his son before his friends for being too willful. This was a very different kind of fathering to what I knew. And I was amused when another man scoffed at my ambition to write at my cabin in the woods, so I gave his words verbatim to one of my characters. Well-drawn characters, just like the people we know, will always have mystery about them, more facets than we will ever see and wouldn't understand even if we could. In fiction, we have the chance to look more closely at those facets and try to tease out explanations. We can give our characters backgrounds and motives that we might never learn about our real world friends. Generally, the more details we learn about others, the better we can know them. It is our nature to assemble those details into some kind of coherent whole, which serves as our approximation of who these other people are. Telling stories is our way of understanding others. Telling the stories that make up the novel was my way of understanding my characters. And I found that they have more stories to tell me. In fact, the vignettes between each chapter, in which the characters get to speak in the first person, is their attempt to take back the novel from the narrator, who they think has sentimentalized their stories. They're trying to set the record straight. We finished up our discussion uh, with Paul by asking him uh, if he would do a reading for us, because after all, this is Charlotte's podcast, where authors give voice to the written word. So let's listen in to uh, Paul Lamb reading uh, a short piece from One Match Fire. This is a selection from the prologue. In it, the protagonist, David, is returning to his family cabin to begin clearing it out because they have to sell it for his father's medical bills. It's very heartrending for him but he's trying to be stoic. His father had once mistakenly claimed the call of a mourning dove was that of an owl. David had been so struck by this error that he doubted his memory. How could his dad be wrong? It had to be one of the few times he ever was. Yet while he knew his father had considered himself an outdoorsman, he was never much of a naturalist. His old cabin looked weary now, not so much run down or neglected as lonely. On the drive, David tried to remember the last time they had all been there together. More than a decade gone now. Such a shame. So many of the important moments of his life had been lived at this little Ozark cabin. It had been Kurt's 11th birthday party, marred by biting horseflies that kept him inside while the cool lake beckoned in the August heat. He parked on the gravel pad just as he had countless times. The sides of his car, accustomed to pay streets, spattered with mud. His father had called the place his cabin at the end of the road, but it was really just at the end of a gravel track. Two miles of washboard after leaving the county blacktop, even less passable now that it got so little use. Jimmy, their neighbor and unofficial caretaker, would see a strange car at the cabin and know it was time to come by. 
Stepping out of his car, David was greeted by a familiar smell, one that he forgot every year until it greeted him again. A November forest. The smell of fallen oak leaves and the thin soil still warmed by the sun. A rich smell that convinces him it will last forever, though he's learned that nothing ever does. A weedy footpath forked from the parking pad. The short level way went to the cabin. The more steep route followed the old sandstone steps to the lake. As a boy, David would fly down those steps, bursting from the car the same way his dog Buddy had when they finally arrived from Kansas City. Now he picked his way carefully down the irregular steps, mindful of a tumble and the remoteness of the cabin. As he approached the water, two crows rose from the old dock and settled in a nearby tree to watch him. The tilting dock looked unsafe now. Even the local kids, Jimmy reported, no longer dive from it. Yet there on the rotting boards, he saw a fresh pile of fish guts, what the crows had been after. Someone had been fishing off the tumble-down dock that very morning. If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the cost of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out. And in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Weir's podcast and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. All right, our second author to feature today is uh, Sonia Ramsey. Sarah, tell us about uh, Sonia. Sonia Ramsey is a professor of history and women's studies and gender studies and the director of the Women's and Gender Studies program at UNC Charlotte. She's written several historical works, um, of course, the one that we're going to talk about today about Bertha Maxwell Roddy. She also wrote Reading, Writing, and Segregation, A Century of Black Women Teachers in Nashville, which came out in 2008. Um, she served as a consultant or provided information for a bunch of different organizations, Axios, Charlotte Magazine, The Daily Show, NPR, LemonadaMedia.com, and USA Today. Um, she got her BA in journalism from Howard University and her master's and PhD in U.S. history from UNC Chapel Hill. And she's a member of the Charlotte alumni chapter of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority. Bertha Maxwell Roddy, A Modern-Day Race, Woman, and the Power of Black Leadership is a biography of, of course, the educational activist and black studies forerunner, Bertha Maxwell Roddy. The book examines a life of remarkable achievements in leadership in the desegregated South. Sonia modernizes the 19th century term race woman to describe how Maxwell Roddy and her peers turned hard-won civil rights and feminist milestones into tangible accomplishments in North Carolina, as well as nationwide from the late 1960s all the way to the 90s. And we asked Sonia uh, three questions. Uh, the first question we asked her uh, was about this term, a modern-day race woman. And we asked her, how does it apply to Bertha Maxwell Roddy? Now, a modern-day race woman was a 19th-century term once used to describe leaders such as Ida B. Wells Barnett, um, and who is an uh, anti-lynching activist and famous journalist. But I wanted to revitalize the term because it had died down over the years as the term activists emerged in the civil rights movement. I wanted to revitalize it to talk about women who weren't necessarily on the front lines in civil rights marches, but were engaged in activism just as well behind the scenes. And I think Dr. Maxwell Roddy epitomizes the idea of the modern day race woman from, because of her ed educational activism and her cultural and um, institution building. And she made life for African-American children and women better after the marches, after the civil rights movement died down, but it still um, was a need for activism. We also asked Sonia, uh, did the fact that uh, your biographical subject uh, was a living person and one with whom you interacted, how that impacted uh, her scholarship? It was so exciting to write about an, a living person because as historians, we often write about people who passed away. And so I had a direct um, conduit for information. I could just ask her what was going on. But it was also challenging because I faced um, issues with objectivity. And I had to expand my view as a traditional historian to include ethnographic um, um, techniques as I had to interview others. And I had to um, look for evidence in very different ways, obvious ways to um, back up some of the things that Dr. Roddy was taking. But I wouldn't have traded 
that experience for the world because it was in silver in Spanish to be around an actual leader of that stature. Um, but it was also exhilarating to look um, as an objective historian and, and critique her in that way, too. So I wouldn't have traded it for the world, but it definitely had its challenges. And then finally, we asked uh, Sonia to give us one takeaway from Maxwell Roddy's life that had changed her own life. Um, I would take so many things um, away from this book and um, I use in my own life with Dr. Roddy. One is to look for allies, no matter who they are, as long as they will support your cause. They don't have to necessarily look like you or be your same gender. To see leadership wherever you see it, not to have preset notions about who can be a leader. They may be a young student. They may be a neighbor, um, but anyone can be a leader if they have, if you could see that quality in them. And Dr. Roddy often saw leadership qualities in students that as a professor, I would have been like, really? But they actually ended up turning out to be great leaders. Um, also, the general philosophy that she has of servant leadership. Um, when you are given a position of leadership, leadership is not for your own gain or ego. It's because now you have a mandate to serve, to help to uplift and make things better. Um, she often used in her many of her speeches, borrowed from the South African philosophy, the term of Umbutu, um, the term of, and the term is I am because we are. And that is the epitome of Dr. Maxwell Roddy. We wrapped up our discussion uh, with Sonia by asking her if she would read a section from the book. Uh, and here you'll find her reading uh, a clip uh, from the book. Bertha Maxwell Roddy, A Modern-Day Race Woman and the Power of Black Leadership. In a 1995 Crisis Magazine article entitled, quote, Dr. Bertha Maxwell Roddy, end quote, just a reluctant leader who takes a bull by the horns, end quote, writer Eric L. Clark reported how Roddy, the 20th National President of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, an international women's public service organization of over 350,000 initiated members, claimed that she, quote, never sought out to be a leader, end quote. Born in 1930, Charlotte's Bertha Maxwell Roddy personified the work of untold African-American women who strategically formed new pathways to ensure that Black children, women, and families thrived after the collective presence of the civil rights marchers or the fiery speeches of the Black power activists faded from public view after the 1970s. As a beneficiary of post-war rights movements, Bertha Maxwell Roddy used her new social access and political power to enact positive change on the local and national levels from the 1960s to the 1990s. Maxwell Roddy served as a desegregation trailblazer in 1968 as one of Charlotte's first Black women principals of a predominantly white elementary school, moving to academia as the University of North Carolina at Charlotte's second Black full-time faculty member in 1970. Maxwell Roddy later became the founding director of the university's Black Studies program, BSP, in 1971. There, she extended the reach of the BSP beyond the campus to help Black neighborhoods ravaged by urban renewal and school closings. In 1974, Maxwell Roddy and colleague Mari Harper co-founded the Afro-American Cultural and Service Center, a local African-American community arts institution, now the Harvey B. Gantt Center, Charlotte's premier Black art space. In 1975, as the BSP director, Maxwell Roddy worked to institutionalize the broader field of Black studies and ensure its permanence through the founding of its most prominent professional organization, the National Council for Black Studies. Even though Maxwell Roddy, a former 1980 candidate for the North Carolina General Assembly, had explored electoral politics, she was repelled by the negative actions of exploitive, self-absorbed politicians. In contrast, Maxwell Roddy became a leader to solve problems. After viewing how racial and economic discrepancies harmed Black children in Charlotte's Black First Ward neighborhood, where Maxwell taught in 1964, she organized the Charlotte Teachers Corps of volunteers to sponsor a summer early childhood education program in the First Ward, the first free program of its kind for Black children in the city. It served as a forerunner for the local and national Head Start program. Maxwell Roddy stepped up to lead on behalf of others as exemplified when she satisfied the wishes of her local and regional-based sorority sororities by running in 1992 to become Delta Sigma Theta's first national president from the South Atlantic region. Reluctant, yes, as she mentioned in Clark's article, ineffective, no. In this book, I retrieved and modernized the once dated term race woman used to describe late 19th century, century civil rights activists from the not so distant past to describe Bertha Maxwell Roddy. She and her peers turned hard world civil rights triumphs into tangible real world accomplishments. 
If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottemeaterspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play or participate in an author or marketing talk or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750 word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. All right, here we are in Act 2. Uh, we talk about uh, writing topics. Uh, we start with uh, Charlotte Litt. Uh, we have a tip from Power Reality. It's the uh, fourth uh, in a series on scenes. This one is, and this is appropriate, how to end a scene. So let's hear what Paul has to say. This tip is part of a series about writing good scenes. Scenes are the building blocks of stories, novels, memoirs, films, and plays, and writing scenes contain a variety of skills. Several tips ago, we talked about where to begin or enter a scene, which is as late as possible. We close this series about writing scenes with the far side, how to end a scene. We'll look at two components of this, when technically does a scene end, and what are the options for ending a scene. First, let's get the technical aspect out of the way. Generally, a scene ends when one of these three things change. Time, place, or point of view character. Put in a blank line and the new scene begins. But whether or not you actually put a visible break between scenes, you can't just flow from one to the other. It's a style choice. You still begin the new scene as if it were standing alone. Second, where do you end a scene? There are many opinions on this, but I'd say there are two common types of endings you want to master. One type is on an important note or moment. In an earlier tip, I said that the scene should end in a different place than where it began. Thus, your scene might end with an emphasis on that new information or change. This kind of ending should have a strong close, a dramatic action or line. Another type of close is the cliffhanger. You can achieve this by breaking the scene in half. This is common in thrillers or any story with parallel storylines, where you can leave one and go play in the other for a while, leaving the first one hanging. But a way that works in any genre is to end by emphasizing a new unanswered question, a newly opened or deepened conflict, a major setback, something that makes the reader need to keep going on to the next chapter to find out what happens next. Now, here's your action step. Evaluate each of your scenes and try to bring them to a big close. Something, a question, a cliffhanger, a dramatic action, something that causes the reader to turn the page. If any of your scenes end softly, if you, metaphorically speaking, wander out the door rather than slam it, ask, would you keep reading? And maybe, does the scene even belong in the story? And if it does belong, try out different endings different ways to keep the pages turning. For more two-minute tips from Charlotte Litt, listen to Beyond 300 episodes of this podcast or visit charlottelitt.org slash tips. Yeah, I think this is good. I, I was trying to remember who in our Write Quote series uh, said this. It might have been Ron Rash, New York Times bestselling author, that you know, all you're really trying to get to do, the, the reader to do is turn the page. And uh, the end of a scene is as good a place as any to make them do that, particularly if they're invested in the scene. You don't want to get to the end of it. Uh, well, that's good. Let's just stop here. You know, we got got to keep them moving. So, uh, Sarah, your thoughts? Yeah, that, that's a great point that no matter how the scene ends, you want to give them something there to make them want to read the next scene, um, whatever that might be. And I think that Paul's point is interesting that usually a scene ends either with something important or with some kind of a cliffhanger. And because we sort of unconsciously expect that a scene is going to end with something important, I think we as readers put extra weight on whatever happens at the end of the scene. So sometimes as a writer, you have to remind yourself that readers are going to put a lot of significance on whatever the last line or paragraph in a scene is. And I've seen that happen where they'll have something that actually isn't that important, but I'm expecting like, oh, wait, this is going to be, there's going to be consequences for this just because it happens at the end of a scene or the end of a chapter. So you have to kind of think about that when you're writing, like how are writers going to receive it? The same way as if 
in a poem, the, the last line automatically has extra significance. So whatever you put there, people are really going to think about it and think, oh, there's, there's like an extra meaning here. <laughs> so you can use that to your advantage when you are ending a scene and know that readers are going to pay a little bit more attention to that last line or that last paragraph or last moment, image, piece of dialogue, whatever it is. Um, and that's a good place to put in, like we were talking about in our tip from the last episode, a little bit more subtext and give a little bit more that's happening maybe under the surface in that final moment. So Hannah, what um, what do you see at the end of scenes that cause you to want to turn the page to find out what's happening? Yeah, I mean, next? I feel like a, I don't know. I always, you know, how when you're reading, sometimes you're like, I just gotta get to a good stop stopping point, then I'm gonna change the laundry out, or I'm gonna do da da da. I feel like <laughs> the goal of the writer is probably to make it so there is no stopping point. You're just like, no, you gotta keep moving. <laughs> um, I feel like I don't know. I mean, I'm a big fan of thrillers and that kind of thing, like mysteries and stuff like that. And for me, it's like I, f- you know, how there's like page breaks and that sort of thing. It's it's like I love when I always see like I'll flip ahead and see like a page break, and I'm like, all right, I'll stop here. Then I get to that point, it's like some insane cliff cliffhanger, and I'm like, never mind, I'm gonna keep going. Like, I feel like, I, yeah, I, I always love a good cliffhanger. I love a good um, like action point where it's it's kind of like the character gets to a bridge and they have to cross, figure something out, and go to the next thing. Um, and I think I've mentioned this before too, but I like really fast paced stuff. So I don't really want all that extra of those extra words or anything in there. I kind of just like a scene to end with like the like. <laughs> punch punch in the gut <laughs> let me look, think about this and then and then i'll just like jump ahead to the next one yeah usually in a thriller at the end of a scene uh somebody is like dead in deep peril some <laughs> yeah. kind you know they're they're teetering on the edge of a cliff yes. uh holding on by their mm-hmm. pinky you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and we gotta turn the page to mm-hmm. see what happens uh, well yeah so i think there's a difference too between writing the endings of scenes and writing the endings of short stories. I've always found it very hard to write the endings of short stories, but I'm coming around to what some authors have been sharing, having read uh, a lot of these quotes, um, you know, about how the the ending of a short story a lot of times circles back to the beginning of the short story and solves a problem, whereas in in a novel with scenes, that's not your goal. You're not trying to wrap everything up in a bow at the end of a scene. You're trying to propel the writer, uh, I mean the reader, forward uh, with the action. So when I and, and as a writer, when I'm writing uh, a novel, I'm I'm I want to be interested in what's going to happen in the next scene too. <laughs> so I like to leave, you know, with a question that I may not have answered, or something that's going to happen to my characters that I may not know how they're going to get out of it, to propel me into writing the next scene, not just if I'm a reader reading the next scene. So maybe one action step I would add to what Paul suggested uh, would be, you know, after you've written your second or third draft, go back, not just, don't just read the first line of the novel. That's what everybody does. They spend days, you know, working on that first line of the novel. But read the, read the last couple lines of each scene. And if you're bored with them or you yawn, then, you know, do something mm-hmm. else, you know, pick it up and to help propel them to the next, uh, to the next chapter. All right, well, that's good stuff. Uh, we've got... Uh, in this uh, act two, we've also got community blog post, and uh, you know, just to remind you out there, if you're a writer and you want to contribute your knowledge, uh, just go to our website, the contact page, and click on and submit your blog. And if we accept it, uh, we're going to put it out there in a lot of places, and we're going to have you record audio for it. Uh, this audio has uh, been recorded by D.S. Davis. Uh, the title of uh, his blog post is Hindsight Luxuries of self-publishing. Sarah, tell us about Drew. Sure. Um, Drew published his first novel called Storyteller in 2019. He's since released both a short story collection titled Scream at the Mirror and a second novel titled IPA. He's a devout independent and his books can be found exclusively on Amazon. He has a degree in English education from the University of South Florida, um, but he lives and works in Asheville, North Carolina with his cats, Luna and Foster, and his dog, Delia. Is that like a new religious denomination in the South, a devout <laughs> independent? <laughs> devout independent <laughs> publisher, <Yeah>. I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll uh, let's listen to what, uh, what Drew has to say, and uh, we'll talk about it. This blog post is titled Hindsight Luxuries of Self-Publishing. Simply by remaining alive, you gain luxury. Experience is like the dollars and cents of knowledge. It isn't exciting to gain, but it adds up over time. Recently, I turned 27 years old, the age all the cool kids died. 
And even though I'm falling into next year with little life knowledge gained, it has been a tremendous year of learning on the writer side of things. I'm thinking today about myself at 24, publishing for the first time. I'm thinking about myself at 21, writing for people's attention. And I'm thinking about myself at six, when I was encouraged to write creatively for the first time. Here's what I would say to those people if I could. Number one, writing is not music. It may feel like it is, but it's not. Number two, if you choose to take on a social media persona for your writing, you're taking on a tool that should be used wisely. Number three, other writers are not your opponents. Don't treat them like they are. Number four, you may think you are producing something completely new and unique. The reality is you probably are not. Number five, the previous is a chance to learn, not a reason to quit. Number six, be prolific rather than innovative. Number seven, writing is not the same thing as speaking. If you try to write exactly how you speak, then translation might be affected. Number eight, you need to know all of your characters beyond just their names. Number nine, just because you're an artist doesn't mean you get a pass to be an asshole. Number 10, writing is instinctual. Crafting and editing are skill intensive. Number 11, show your work to people who won't let you embarrass yourself. Number 12, if you feel like you're ripping off another author, you are. Number 13, if you want to try and emulate another author, riff off, don't rip off. Number 14, it's hard to do good work if you're not working silently for sufficient periods of time. Number 15, it's hard to find an audience, accept the reality of working without one. Number 16, your books will outlive you. Remember this. Number 17, if you gain a following, it's important to remember that you are also gaining a responsibility. Number 18, learn KDP front to back. Number 19, poor formatting can hurt how your book is received. Number 20, be grateful when somebody tells you that they've read your work. All right, uh, that's a lot of a lot of stuff packed in there. Um, I, I, I want to, you know, I know that uh, Drew here is a little bit uh, bemoaning the fact that he's so old at uh, <laughs> you know, Drew. 27 years. I, I think uh, it's all a matter of perspective, right? When you're in your mid-20s and you, you're about to turn 30, you think, my gosh, I'm getting so old. But it should be. I'm 27 years young, you know. Yeah, right? he's like uh, when all the cool kids died. But, like, dang. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. Down at the Chevy at the levee and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, didn't realize that's yeah, what some died. truth. Uh, a lot of good stuff in here. A lot of good uh, information here. Um, I say a lot of marketing related stuff. Uh, Hannah, uh, I'll let you go first. Yeah, I mean. First of all, I feel like he definitely has thought pretty deeply about his experience. And I think one of the big, I love that he, well, I guess a couple of different things. Um, I love that he kind of looked at this whole experience and what he just mistakes he made and that sort of thing as learning experiences. So he was just like, any mistakes that you make, it doesn't mean you should quit or give up. It means you learn from this. And I think that's kind of the same for any part of writing or marketing a book. It's like, I mean, you're always going to kind of mess something up or make a mistake or try something that didn't quite work. But as long as you're learning from it, that's the most important thing. Um, and he kind of co- goes back to what we've been talking about with uh, Paul Reale's two minute tips with getting to know your characters. Like we're, you know, he's like, get to know your characters beyond their names. I thought that was great. That's something that really stood out to me. And I just, I think that's really valuable. And he, he said, get to know KDP front and back. I think that's a really great thing to put out there for self-published authors. Um, that is so true. I've had so many conversations just with different authors, um, you know, who have tried to who are like well I want to do well with my my Amazon but I'm publishing through Amazon but like blah 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 but I don't really understand how it works it's like you you really have to understand how it works because there's also so many different promotional opportunities inside of KDP and um, it's it's one of those things where it's like it's worth the time to put into it if you're going to self-publish so I think that's really great Um, he is 
funny drew you're funny you're a funny guy he's like <laughs> i think one of my favorite he's like just because you're a talented or well-known author doesn't mean you get to be an asshole <laughs> um, i love that i think that's so true i, I love that drew so i mean yes bravo yeah. drew <laughs> have, you, have, have you ever wanted to say that to any of your clients no you don't have to say <gasps> anything that's it. I won't yeah. yeah, that Landis, I tell you, when I when he, he was, was the working, worst. I, was I mean, him, God, know, so. there's I'm just like, man, you're an asshole. Yeah. Nah, no, not you. Well, what do you think, Sarah? What are your thoughts? Um, yeah, I agree. He's got a great sense of humor, and there is a lot of wisdom in here at his mm-hmm. ripe old age of 27. <laughs> um, but yeah, th- there was so much that he said that was, I, I think, really insightful. Um, a lot of humility, I think, comes through in a good way, like the sort of reality check that you're probably not creating something that's totally reinventing the wheel. Like there have been so many books and stories written since you know the beginning of language that no matter what you write, it's not going to be totally new and innovative. Um, so I think he said something about try to be prolific rather than innovative and I do think it's good to try to be original but maybe it's better to to think about being authentic and that's the best way to be original and to be just true to your own voice with as opposed to trying to create something that nobody else has ever done before because you're not going to do that so just write what you write and what's authentic to you and write as much of it as you can and turn it out there and you'll you'll find an audience that way Um, another thing he said that I really liked was I think writing is instinctual um, crafting and editing are skillful or skill intensive. That reminds me of um, something I've heard writers say before, which is something like write drunk, edit sober. <laughs> like the idea that when you're you're writing and you're getting that sort of first draft out there, you want to just be uninhibited and put it all out there and not, not edit yourself. Just get the words out and let your ideas flow freely. And then you go back in and you pull on your skills of editing and you um, really hone it and, and turn it into something that can be, you know, the final product you want it to be. But I think that's a good dichotomy to think about that. Like when you're first writing, just follow your instincts, write what you want to write, let your creativity be uninhibited. And then the work comes in <laughs> and then you kind of hone it. Um, but yeah, th- a lot of great lessons in there. Your comment there reminded me of an interview I did with David Joy, and he's a fantastic author, sort of a student of Ron Rash. He's uh, from Western North Carolina, and I was asking him because, you know, a lot of different kinds of moonshine up in there. I said, do you ever ever write drunk uh, or with alcohol or have a prop? And with, with very much humility, more than he needed to share, he said, well, no, I only have so many faculties to work with. I better not do that when I'm, when I'm writing. So, <laughs> I love David um, Joy. He's great. But I agree with you. I, uh, to, yeah, yeah, to tell you about to Drew, Drew and I met in this writer support group, and we featured the writer support group, about seven of the authors in it, at our first episode uh, earlier this month. And if you missed that, go back and listen if you're an author thinking about uh, trying to market your book because there's a lot of great uh, advice from people in there. But I think Drew and I are the only uh, men uh, – in there and I'm not one of the young ones of the two of us <laughs> that are there because we know how old he is <laughs> and, and you can hear how old I am. Um, but uh, yeah, so, um, and his attitude carries over uh, similar to what goes on in that group because he mentioned other writers are not your opponents and that's really what this writer support group is all about. And, and I'll tell you, um, you, you know, if you don't join that group or other group, but but this is a different kind of group. It's not a group where uh, you share your work. Uh, Sarah's a member of 125 of those, right? Exactly. Yes. She, yeah, she, she's in all those categories. This is a group where you're talking about things uh, like formatting and like KDP and like promotion deals and like marketing and all the kind of stuff. Just the questions that authors have where you need support because you don't know the answers. And I would say that one of the things you mentioned here is that formatting is important, and, and it is because – if you don't format your books well and it looks like you, you kind of threw it up there sloppily, uh, it'll affect how people receive your book. And and this is one of those areas where you can choose to learn to do that yourself um, and get the software. Or if you're like me and you want to farm out some things that you'd rather not, and you can get a good person like uh, Jennifer Tripp, who's worked with me, very reasonable. She formats the books. I give her the information, what I'm looking for. And she's got it all set up and can format it. And, and the, so there's different ways that you can go about that, but make sure that it's formatted well. And as Hannah said, and as Drew said, yeah, KDP is important. Make sure that it, uh, you, you're, you've got your author page up. Make sure you've got your books. If they're in a series, they're linked together. Make sure that people know how to find you when they Google you. And, and you know, not just Amazon, but 
if you're wide and you're on Kobo and Barnes and Noble and Google Play and Apple Books, you know, that uh, each one of them's got a little bit different thing that you've got to be paying attention to. And, you know, if you're, if you're a small press author or you're an indie author or even if you're an author with a bigger press, you know, it really makes a difference how well your book is received, you know, online and the things that you do. And I'm still learning a lot of that. Uh, but the point is, and he makes a good one, is study it, mm-hmm. learn it, keep learning it because it's an ongoing process. So good stuff there, Drew. We thank you uh, for that. Uh, appreciate it. And uh, let's see, we're going to be uh, moving to our book recommendations uh, in just one moment. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswave.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, uh, we've got uh, book recommendations. We're in our final act, act three. Uh, Sarah, what do you got for us this week? Uh, recently, I read a book called Dirtbag, Massachusetts by Isaac Fitzgerald. Um, it's a memoir, which I actually, I don't read too many memoirs, but this was um, something that I read for a friend's book club. So it's nice to get, you know, a little bit outside of my, my normal reading comfort zone. It's a little bit different from normal mem- memoirs because I feel like usually a memoir has a very clear arc of like, this is what the book is about. This is the audience I'm targeting. This one, I believe most of it was written originally as separate essays that he had published elsewhere and then compiled into a memoir. So he's kind of pulling from different episodes in his life and constructing a memoir out of those. Um, and he's had a really interesting life. It starts out with him growing up in this poor community in Massachusetts and talking about his childhood there and some trauma and abuse he suffered as a kid. Um, He goes off to this rich boarding school and is kind of like a fish out of water. There are chapters talking about his experiences in like barbershops and tattoos. Um, There's a time when he was working in porn for a while. He went off to Burma and did like aid work overseas. So he's had a really interesting life. Um, The essays are well written. He pulls some interesting insights out of them, I think. Um, So yeah, I found it really engaging. I think he also has written like children's books and cookbooks and <laughs> I keep getting book recommendations for other things he's written now that are very different from this so he's he's an interesting guy for sure so I would recommend that one first I love that title Dirtbag Massachusetts it's just like I love that I'm going to read that <laughs> um, I'm going to recommend Razorblade Tears by S.A. Cosby this is one of the, my favorite books that I read last year and I was just kind of looking through something that I would recommend as I get back in the swing of reading myself this year but um, it was a great book and I love he's such a good author and it was about um, an interracial gay couple who was murdered and how their fathers worked together to kind of figure out who committed the crime um it's a really good book i mean he's such a great voice and an interesting story itself like it was uh like it was kind of interesting because the white the dad of the white kid who was murdered he was kind of like this sort of trashy weird guy that like hung out in alleys smoking cigarettes and stuff and then um the father of the black man who was married he was sort of trying to be this up, you know, this citizen that like didn't hang out with people like the other dad and all that kind of thing. So they were in kind of two different classes, but they both dealt with different hardships and kind of coming together and um, helping to find justice for their kids who were married and just overcoming a lot of different things. It was a really cool and unique story. So I would recommend it. Yeah, so the book I'm recommending was a, a gift that I got uh, at uh, Christmas from my daughter-in-law. It's called The Cost of These Dreams, Sports Stories and Other Serious Business by Wright Thompson. Wright Thompson is a well-known sports writer, uh, but more in the vein of uh, deep dive uh, sports stories and really more than just sports. It's more about the humanity of the people that uh, he's investigating. And uh, it's a New York Times bestseller, but I love it because it, it – uh, it sort of tells the backstory of these very iconic people. I mean, we you write stories about Tiger Woods and Lionel Messi and Michael Jordan and others, and you hear things that you wouldn't hear, and you find out about their details. And plus, it's, it's got blurbs by two, you know, John Grisham blurbs it and talks about how the characters are rich, and they are because I've enjoyed reading the stories. But here, here's one <laughs> comment that I like. It says, because my favorite author, Larry McMurtry, it says, to say this piece is about sports, while it is true as far as it goes, is like saying that Larry McMurtry wrote uh, 
Lonesome Dove, and that's a book about a cattle drive. No, Lonesome Dove is a book about people. It's about really cool characters who just happen to make the longest cattle drive <laughs> from Texas uh, up to Montana. But yeah, so I've, I've really enjoyed that. And it's the kind of thing that you can put on your nightstand and you can read uh, you know, a story or half a story a night and you can come away from that uh, thinking you know, more deeply about you know, who these people are. There was one story that was fascinating where he tried to research and find out uh, whatever happened to the very first boxer uh, who boxed uh, Muhammad Ali in a match. They could find the first 50, but they couldn't find him. And so it was just sort of an epic uh, you know, journey to find this particular guy who like fell on hard times. But anyway, good story, good stuff. Hey, let's hear what Mark West has to say uh, this week about his recommendation. Hello, this is Mark West with the Storied Charlotte blog. My recommendation today is a brand new book called The Quentin Blake Book by Jenny Uglo. Quentin Blake is a British illustrator, perhaps best known for his illustrations of Roald Dahl's children's books. Jenny Uglo goes into some detail about the collaboration between Quentin Blake and Roald Dahl but she does not limit herself to this topic. She covers the full range of Quentin Blake's career as an illustrator. And not only that, but she includes many, many examples of Quentin Blake's art in the context of the book. For anyone who's interested in children's book illustration, this book is a winner. I highly recommend it. Charlotte Readers Podcast is on social media, and we'd love to have you follow and engage with us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Charlotte Readers Podcast. Check us out. Sarah, can you tell us what's coming next? Sure. Next time, we are going to feature New York Times bestselling author Craig Johnson and his novel Helen Back, which Publishers Weekly calls Solid. They say Longmire fans will relish Johnson's new insights into Walt's character. We also have a feature with teenage author Sydney Horn, author of A Shattered World, and we're going to be talking about her blog post, Cautious Creativity. And we have a thought-provoking Charlotte two-minute tip, some elevator pitches, and our book recommendations. All right, listeners, thank you for trusting us with your time today. We appreciate uh, you being here. Until next time, uh, read on and write on.